So let's uh, pray and we'll get into our uh, parable here uh, this evening. Lord above, we thank you that uh, you're a God that is one who is uh, delighting in showing compassion, uh, that uh, in fact you run uh, to show us compassion. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, we at times don't want it or aren't near enough to experience it. And uh, we pray that uh, you would help us tonight just to get a picture of who you are, but also uh, in all of this uh, reflect on the fact of what our attitude is uh, towards others uh, in coming to Christ. So Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for this parable that has impacted many uh, throughout generations. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are looking at the parable of the lost son, and uh, most of us would call it the prodigal son, but we have to remember that there are connections with this. You uh, oftentimes will miss out on the fact of um, the, uh, you'll hear somebody preach a message just on the lost son, skip over the, the other two because they're shorter and whatever, and this one preaches uh, and the like, but we do have to remember uh, that these are a collection of three. They build. They build on themes that are in each one. Uh, you see them repeated over and over again. In fact, as you have in your notes, the emphasis of the first two parables was that God rejoices over one sinner that repents. And that's how it closes out. I mean, it, 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 you might go, well, it's all about the seeking aspect. And, and the, as, the aspect that is emphasized by Christ, because it's the last thing, is that he's delighted in seeing sinners restored, returned. Uh, and you do have individuals seeking for lost things. However, this last parable expands on many of the previous theme, but ends with a main application for the Pharisees. Okay. Uh, it's got all the same themes, but he kind of just shifts for a little bit because we have an element that wasn't a part of the other two. Uh, a storyline with the eldest son that you wouldn't have ever seen in the first two parables, but suddenly it's here as part of the third one, and uh, you can see uh, that there. So the best way to understand this parable is to look at, uh, as we get here, is to look at the three different characters. Uh, when it comes to larger parables, okay, these ones that are more expansive and long in their discussion, it's sometimes best to go through and look at the three different characters because that's probably the, the indicating the fact that there's three, three things the Lord is talking about. But uh, you play the, the most emphasis on the last one uh, because that's what the Lord ends with. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you can do this. You've got the man who's going in the normal activities of life and then falls into uh, thieves, and you can talk about that, and then you can talk about the individuals that bypass, it's the attitude of some that bypass others, uh, will do nothing for them, and then you get to the Good Samaritan, who is the, the fine example of what a man is who is one who helps his neighbors, those that come across his path uh, in life. And uh, so you deal with it that way. So we're going to look at it with three characters in mind. Okay, we'll deal with one and then another and another. One of the things that I said this morning is that hopefully uh, you, when we read through this, look at this as if you're reading it the first time. Uh, I've got a book on my shelf that is just simply this, uh, Jesus Through uh, Middle Eastern Eyes. 
And you go, well, why is that? Well, because uh, we oftentimes come with a perspective that is very first world and non-economy wise that's worried about agriculture. We're, we've got our own problems and whatever. And it's just you know, a new way to look at this. Well, sometimes we just need to go, I need to read this as if I've not read it before. And uh, we'll talk in a little bit uh, what one person is just reading it this morning was just like, you know, I was floored because I sat and read it as uh, you were saying this, and there was something that really, you know, uh, impacted me in this, and I had not really felt or thought about as I read through it. So as we read through this uh, here this evening, just kind of go put away preconceived notions, just kind of go, okay, let's read uh, through this as if I've never seen this story before. Um, you know, we, 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 we sometimes get waylaid by the fact that we've read it time and time again. I can remember a, an occasion where Grace was working with a couple of girls up at, in Fitchburg, and they had gone to camp, and so we drove up to camp the hour up there and got there about midweek, and and these two girls came up. They were teenagers. They had been in the youth group, but they, they were, you know, they were what we would call bus kids. They, the family didn't drive them in or anything. And they came running up to Grace, and they're just like, it is, you know, we're having a great time at camp, and even the preaching's incredible. He, they go, we, we, just, we just heard a story about a guy who was uh, stuck with lions overnight. You ever heard that story? I mean, they were excited about it. And Grace's like, well, yeah, yeah, it's kind of neat. What happened? You know, she's asking them, you know, she wants to hear what their details that they picked up on in the story uh, were. So I, I say that because we sometimes read these stories and it's just kind of ho-hum to us, but we ought to at times go, you know, I'm going to read this as if I've not read it before and just kind of go, okay, what, what am I seeing in reading this that may upset me or uh, surprise me as I read through it? We'll start in verse 11, go right down to the end of the chapter here, and it starts this way. And he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And when he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
they began to be merry. Now uh, his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. He was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, or behold, look, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou gavest me a kid that I might, uh, thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed him for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet or necessary or fitting that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. You see the three different characters, and I, in printing this this morning and, and coming up with this uh, this morning as far as just the, the notes, I forgot to blank out certain things of the titles of these characters, so you get them in advance so you can already see them. But this one, uh, first character, we're just calling the sinful son, we could call him the selfish son. And what he does here is really beyond imagination. He is coming and asking for his inheritance before his father even dies. I mean, just the the audacity to do this is incredible. You know, you're not dead yet. I wish you were so I could get what I have coming to me. Can I have it now? I mean, is really what is going on here? So what, what, is, what is here is that it's, it's, it's almost a distasteful thing to his dad. I don't want you around. I would really rather have your money. Now, he gets, as uh, the story lays out for us, understand uh, the Jews would have understood what uh, happens here, is that in the notes here, the youngest son would get a third of his father's property. The other son, the eldest son, would get two-thirds of his dad's property. And this is the way it worked. The eldest son always got a double portion. So think about this. When Jacob uh, has 12 sons, there would be 13 portions to hand out. The eldest son would get two. The rest would all get one. But in this case, you only have two sons, so it's he gets a double portion. He's getting two-thirds of what his dad has. The youngest son gets only a third of this. But understand, the, the eldest son is not getting this handed out to him. Dad sells a third of his stuff and gives it to his son while he's still alive. Now, that just kind of puts some things in our mind, and you go, uh, this is gracious uh, on God's part, or excuse me, the Father's part. Um, It's gracious on the Father's part. He doesn't have to do this, but 
I think Jews listening to this would understand there's, there's Psalms, I believe Psalm 106 is one of them, and there's some others, where it talks about God giving the people what they wanted. You know, usually it's talking about the nation of Israel as they wander the wilderness, but God gave them want, what they wanted, but then gave them leanness to their soul, where they destroyed themselves. I mean, it goes along that way. And, and so what God sometimes does is he goes, okay, sure, you, you don't like what you've gotten, you're demanding more, okay, sure, I'll give you what you want. And then you can see what you got. And so, yes, God, or this father is gracious, but understand, God sometimes does this too when people demand things that it's not rightfully theirs to have or they want it and whatever, and God gives it to them. So you have this, and you, you find the son, he goes off, and he, he goes far away and spends it, spends it on a sensual lifestyle. It's all about the senses. And we know it's a far country. You go, why? Because when you get further along in the story, you find out that he joins himself to a citizen of the country who has swine. Jesus is talking to a bunch of Jews. To them, swine are unclean. Not just for eating, you didn't own them because you didn't want to touch them. In order, you know, if you touch them, you might become unclean, even though the Scripture didn't say that. Okay? They, they never said that. It just said, you can't eat this, it's unclean. But it had gotten to the point in that culture, you, you didn't own swine, didn't have them around because you might touch them, become ceremonially unclean, can't go in the temple, offer sacrifices, all this that goes along, you won't be right with God. And so this is that the son leaves everything behind that's normal for him, his normal culture and whatever, and just goes off to a far country, one that is not uh, Jewish in nature or whatever, and he goes and lives his life however he wants. I mean, that's, that's the people would have understood this by what he meant by this. And as you see the notes there, his wealth ran out at the same time a great financial crisis hit due to a famine. Being an agricultural society, the farms don't do well, you're going to have problems. The only work he could find uh, was to feed and live with, and I have this in quotes, unclean animals, is because we said they aren't unclean unless you eat them, but there's a play on this because we know that pigs are unclean. Um, <clears throat> we have a standing and running joke with my mom. This is probably 25, well, it's, 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 yeah, it was when I was in high school that she had made a comment one time, that pig looks cute. We're like, really, mom? <clears throat> and so from then on, it's been a kind of a gag in our family that we keep sending her, you know, pig puzzles or pig thing. I mean, it's not that she likes pigs, but, you know, this is just part of the family, you know, gifting over the years. We've stopped doing it because I think at this point she's, you know, not wanting to collect anything else. And it's like, okay, you know what, we're done with this. But pigs are unclean animals. My, my uncle um, had uh, lived in Kansas and had a pig farm with, I think, 500 pigs and you know city boy driving there and we're two miles away and the wind was blowing the direction we were we were coming up the road and you could smell those things then you get out there and they're wallowing up to their whatever you want to call it their you know their you know pig knuckles or whatever you know and they're the the that and 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 they're just loving it out there and you're just smelling all this and whatever and you're going this is one of the grossest things ever and this is where this young man is working 
He's got to go out in the middle of all of that and start tossing this stuff out for the pigs to eat. And they're eating it right out of the ground there. And you say, well, what, what is he getting here? Well, he's I, I, hard to describe this, but if you've ever had carob plants or that type of thing, it's like a large shell pea type thing. Um, and hard-shelled kind of thing, if I, if I remember correctly, there's not much sustenance in it. In fact, very little sustenance at all. And so he is sitting here throwing it on the ground, and then he's thinking, hmm, that looks pretty good. That's as far as a human being can really go when you start having individuals that are willing to wallow in sewer to get their food and go, this looks really good. And that's the intention. You get as low as you possibly can get, and then this is what happens. The, the way that they, the Jews would have had it, even though they didn't have electricity back then, what happens in verse number 17 is this, is that it's like the spiritual light bulb goes off. Okay, that's what you have there. In this condition, uh, it was in this condition that the spiritual light bulb was turned on. There is a thing called enlightenment in the Scripture. In fact, you read in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is praying that these people would have, uh, that their minds would be enlightened. I mean, what, what is wrong with unsaved people, sinners in this world? They're walking around in darkness. They're, they're running into things because they don't see it. They're doing things that they would never do if the light was on. And for this young man, God kind of turns a light bulb on for him to see. You aren't anywhere where you need to be at, and it's like, wow, how did I get to this point? There is, there is an alternative to this. You don't have to live like this. And for this uh, young man, he realizes the best solution for him was to return to his father. He is willing to confess his sin to his father and, made, uh, and make no demands from his father. He just asks for, and you have this as a blank, he asks for a little grace from his father so that he can be a servant. Now, he's not asking for pay or anything, but in some ways he's coming back and going, you know, I'm going to pay off some of the stuff that I've done. You know, the damage I caused you by going away, and maybe I can help out by being a good servant and make up the difference in some of this. But that's his thinking. And you're kind of going, yeah, it's a much better solution. You at least get bread. You're not eating this off the ground. And he, he comes up with this, and as you read this, he has this speech that he works out. I mean, you, you read through it, and he goes, I will rise, say unto my father, and here's what he's going to say. I sinned against heaven before thee, am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. I mean, this man is, as you see in that last paragraph under the sinful son, he is the picture of repentance. This is what repentance and confession is like. Uh, the previous two parables spoke of God delighting in repentance. And for us, you kind of go, it's hard to see a sheep repenting and a coin repenting. But that's how the story ends. He rejoices over one sinner that repenteth. Well, you, you, you know, you're like, okay, you know, great. Jesus enjoys people repenting, but it looks like in those stories that God is seeking out, you know, the coin, the sheep. There doesn't seem to be any repentance going on here. What this story does is it expands upon what repentance is. 
So people are understanding, okay, what does it mean to repent? Well, it's for you to see yourself for what you are, what your sin truly is. And this young man gets it right. I mean, he, he, he's a theologian at this point, having lived his life off on his own. But he goes, listen, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against thee. You know, well, wait a second. He offended his father. Why does he enter into heaven in this? Because all sin is an offense against God. He's figured it out. When you think about when David uh, had his sin and he's confronted with the uh, fact that uh, he is the man. Well, he's murdered somebody, stolen somebody's wife, lied, you know, forced other people to, to be shady in their dealings. And when he gives his confessions, he goes against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, that's not to say that David goes, well, you know, it didn't really matter that I did all this other stuff. I I sinned against God. I'm sure there was a lot of uh, public uh, confession in this afterwards when he was getting punished very visibly. But this young man gets what confession is. Confession is uh, you see yourself, well, excuse me, repentance is you see yourself for what you are and how you are in relation to God, and you, literally the term repentance in the New Testament is the idea of changing your mind, and that's the core of it. I think I'm doing okay, I'm going through life, uh, and I'm all right without God, and then all of a sudden, wait a second, this is not good. Where I'm at, that I don't want to be doing anymore. That's wrong, that's bad. And what confession is in in the New Testament is just simply this, I'm saying the same thing God says about me. He sees my sin this way, and I go, my sin is really this way. So the young man is an incredible theologian. Now, it may be that he remembered some of his stuff in his previous uh, life before he went way far away and off the grid uh, from everybody else. But the fact is, is he, he gets it right. This is exactly what repentance is like. And in your notes here, you, you have this, that uh, here the son confesses his sin, run, and running from the father, he displays true repentance. You know, he's going away from his father. Here, repentance, he changes his mind. He's turning back to, it's a change of direction, change of mind, change of thinking. This is an example of repentance. So this sinful son, you want to know what repentance is like? Look at him. Okay, so yes, he's the sinful son, but he is also, uh, you get to the end of this, he's going to be the saved son. You come to character number two. It's right in the middle of verse 20, uh, the the way they split the verse there. Uh, You have the son coming back, and all of a sudden you have now the father being kind of the focus here. But you see this, and when he was a great way off, okay, there's nothing in the story that it says the father's going out and looking for his son, you know, from city to city and going, you know, where's my son, anything. That's not what's going on here, but the father is still seeking, And off in the distance, he sees one that he recognizes the gait of the individual, the walk of that individual, and is just like, and he is like a lightning bolt because it says here he runs. I've always thought about this. I wondered how old he was. You know, I don't know. Um, But I'm guessing he's elderly, and he goes and runs and finds his son. He hugs and kisses him. And you see this, um, 
what happens is that when the son returned, the father saw him far away, ran to meet him. The father was eager and excited for his son's return. I mean, you kind of get the idea. God rejoices over one sinner that repents. He repents in the, or he rejoices in the presence of the angels. Uh, and it's because God's in heaven, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. And he's, uh, he's eagerly waiting this. He's not going, oh, here he comes. No, God is excited about this. The son tried to confess and give his ideas for reconciliation, and I tried to read it in some of the way that you would have had. The son starts his speech off and goes, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son, and I have sinned against you and against heaven. He never gets to the point where he goes, "Uh, just make me one of the servants. The father doesn't even let him get to that point. And what you have lavished here is what we would describe as amazing grace. It's incredible that this is given to him. Because immediately what the father does is this. At the top of the page, the father puts the best robe on him. Now some said this was a robe that signified the fact that he was now the, the head of the family. I see nothing in here that indicates that, but you'll see that sometimes in commentaries. It's just that he puts the best robe on him. The nicest clothing gave him a ring that was a display of family status. You know, you had the family ring that would have the seal or uh, some sort of symbol, and that would indicate that you're a part of that family. And had sandals put on him because only servants went around without shoes. Okay, the, the son at this point had sold everything, probably to, to get something, and he's now shoeless or sandalless back in that culture. Uh, but when the father sees him like this, he goes, get some sandals on him because servants might go around that way, but not the son of the father. You know, he's going to have shoes. And so you have this uh, given to him. The calf being fattened for a special occasion was prepared for a feast. You always, if you were in a wealthier environment, Abraham had this when the guests showed up and he has this, this specialized calf killed. Um, you saved uh, a you know, prime beef cow uh, and uh, waited for a special occasion and this was the occasion. And when you had this type of occasion where you had a calf killed, you had to eat it right then and there. You know, it's not just merely that the father's going, you know, son, you're going to have the biggest steak ever. No, uh, when this fatted calf is killed, it's going to be a party with a whole bunch of people because you need everybody to help eat that meat. So the fatted calf is killed and you have this. The father rejoiced, calls everyone else together to rejoice with him, like the lost coin and the lost uh, sheep. They're calling together. You come, you enjoy the festivities with me and you have all of this. But what you see in that second paragraph is that the Father is a display of the Heavenly Father. God is looking for the return of sinners. And when they draw near Him, He runs to draw near them. Now, you go, well, who's the one that puts the distance? When a sinner is, uh, you know, looking at God, they go, oh, well, God's put His distance between me and Him. No, no. No, it's not. James 4 makes very clear. Draw nigh to God and he will what? Draw nigh unto you. The indicator is you're the one who's gone away. You're the one who's walked away. God's not sitting there going, I'm turning my back and going away from you. No. So when we turn, it's going to feel like that God, you know, who was so distant from us is suddenly instantaneously there. 
And that's what you have here is this example that when a person draws nigh to God, he will draw near to them. He has compassion on them and gives them the status of sons and daughters. I mean, think about this. We're all children of God. We're created in his image. We were created to have fellowship with him, to be part of his family. And what did we do? We left that. We all did. But what you have here is you're given the status of being now officially a son when you return, though you don't deserve it because you brought shame to the family name. I mean, it would have been a shameful thing. Everybody in the community would have known the fact that this son had taken a third of the property and the dad had given it to him because the son had demanded it and the father gave it to him and he goes away. But yet here you have the status. You know what? This is not, you know, my son who's coming back with qualifications, you know, things that, you know, he's kind of my son, but not quite. No, fully a son. And you think about this when a person believes uh, in God and his son uh, that they become, as, excuse me, John 1.12 has, says this, that they have the right to become the sons of God. I mean, this is incredible. It's undeserved. I mean, should this, I mean, I've, I thought about this in originally reading this. Shouldn't the son have been on like, a, you know, a temporary status, you know? Well, let's see. But with this, you know, it's when we come to Christ and we come to him as saving faith, God doesn't go, well, wait a second, you're on temporary status here. We'll see if it's okay. You know, see if you're all right. Really, did you truly repent? No, God gives the status of sons. And that's what he does here. And he rejoices and wants others to know that the family relationship has been restored. The relationship that was broken by sinful man is now there, and the father wants everybody to know. So here you got this father who is the seeking father, though we don't see as much of it in this one. He is the seeking father, but he is extremely gracious beyond what is deserving for the son who brought shame to the family. Uh, And God is like that with sinners who brought him so much shame. He created them to be in his image, and they're using that image to do whatever they want. God still gives status to sons and daughters to those that return and draw nigh to God in faith. That brings us to the third one. The third character in this story, and he, he comes and enters in in verse 25. And I've called him the scowling son. The unhappy son. You can tell when people scowl that they're unhappy with the situation that's going on. Uh, he is scowling. I mean, this oldest son was out in the field and comes back to music and festivity. One thing with parables you have to remember, we don't get all the details. I've kind of thought, why was he not told there was a feast going on? You know, you read this and go, what, you know, how did he miss out on this? Um, but he does. And he comes back and he hears all of this. And when he's told by the servant, he was angry when he heard for whom the feast was set. 
He would not go in, and the father had to come out and call him to the feast. I mean, he is standing with his arms folded outside, and you can see him just glaring and the, 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 the rage in his soul over the fact that his father is doing this, and his father's got to go out and go, listen. I mean, the father declared that his oldest son, excuse me, back up here a second. The son was angry when he's talking to his dad because he deserved a feast, but his brother did not. I mean, he goes through and he goes, listen, I've always been with you. I mean, behold, look at what I've been doing throughout the years. I'm always here, always working in the fields. I'm always doing your business. I'm doing all of this and I've done this and I didn't get a feast like this. You know, I didn't get the fatted calf killed for me so my friends and I could have a party. That's not fair. And the father gives an unusual response. Okay, initially you read it and you're kind of like, I'm not sure you know, I understand this exactly, but what the father declared is this, that his oldest son always had access to all the blessings of being part of the family. You know, that's kind of hard for us to go. Well, he didn't, you know, he didn't get the party. He didn't get the gold star for being the good son. But think about this. Day in and day out, he's enjoying all the food that comes through the table there. He's enjoying all the blessings of the housing and everything else that's there. He's enjoying all of that stuff. He's had access to it the whole time. And, and the dad uh, indicates this, but then makes the story and, and says, here's, here's why we're having this festival uh, this rejoicing is that this son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now alive. I mean, that's a. This is another element that you can deal with in the story. Think about what salvation is. You're lost, but you're found. You were dead. You say, "How was I dead?" Because you're separated from God. Even though you're still living physically and doing everything, you're still separated from God. You're dead, but now you're alive when you're with God. And the Father says, look, this, you have a complete reversal of what was going to happen. You have someone lost, dead, now you have them alive and found. We ought to be rejoicing that that's the case. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, get to that second paragraph, and this is really what, what the, the issue is. The issue with the oldest son was that his attitude, okay, that's the blank that's there initially, his attitude toward his father was wrong. He may have been, and this is in quotes, the good son, but he does not like what his father did. Okay, this is the son that does everything his father tells him to do. He's the good son. But in his heart, he doesn't like what dad's doing. He may very well have been really stirred by the fact when dad gave away part of the inheritance uh, to the brother. Uh, this may have been the first initial point here that was the, the bitter point here. But he does not like what his dad's doing. He doesn't like anything that his father is doing. And for him, he rages in his soul, even though he's the one going around and he's doing everything that his father says. He's got a wrong attitude of heart. And that's what the Lord's dealing with with these Pharisees. 
because this is a problem Jesus sought to address. The religious leaders were like the good son. They were doing what they should. I mean, they not only did all the commandments Scripture gave, they had 613 all commandments that they had figured out that they ought to be doing, uh, some of them legitimate, some of them not from the Scripture, but they thought this is something that God would have us do, and they were following the letter of the law. They were doing this all the time. They were the, the you know, when you talk about teaching, this is the type of kid you want in class because they're always doing what you're supposed to. You don't have to work with them. Uh, there's the other ones that you're kind of like, eh, okay, you know, I got to work with them because they're always doing their own thing. But you, this is the good kid. The Pharisees are the good kid, the good son, the, the one who's always doing what you're supposed to do. The problem is, is that their heart attitude towards the capital F father was one of pride. They thought they had earned the right to be in the presence of God because they were so good. We are so good, uh, we deserve all of the blessings we're going to get because we are so good. Their problem was pride. They did not like that God would take in repentant sinners. You know, we've done good this whole time, and suddenly these people are accepted by God. We don't like that. And so what you ultimately have here is this, is that in the end, excuse me, in the end, they will not be a part of the feast. Ultimately, just, you know, taking the story out, ultimately these individuals will not be in heaven. They'll miss out in the kingdom, which is what the Lord's oftentimes talking about, which is that the time where the Lord rules here on earth, they, they won't be a part of it, and they won't be able to enjoy the after with the new heaven and the new earth. They won't be there because they are thinking they're okay, they're good enough, they should just be a part of it because of who they are. And that's the very thing the Lord's trying to deal with is the heart attitude of these individuals. They're stomping their feet that the Lord would accept sinners, but they don't see themselves as sinners. They think they're on a different status. They think they're on a different level, which then indicates to us is the sins of the heart as important as sins of action? The answer is, yeah. A person will go to hell for a sin of attitude in the heart. Because it's not just our actions that the Lord is able to see and judge. He's able to judge our thoughts, our wills, our our emotion, and he can see those things, and he knows what we're thinking. And so these Pharisees were like this. Now, here's, here's the last thing to consider. And this is something I was thinking about yesterday. I was preparing for this. We call this the parable of the lost son, but the question to consider at the end of this parable is, who is really the lost son in this parable? I mean, who, who really is the lost son? Now, granted, you had the one who was lost and found, but in the end, who's the lost son? Who, who gets this title permanently? It's the eldest son who will not enter into the feast and is not happy with what the father is doing and and will not go with that. And so you kind of get to the end and it's ironic in a way. We go, oh, lost, you know, the prodigal son, the lost son. Uh, In the end, you're going, no, the eldest son's the one who's eternally lost. 
And uh, so this is what the Lord's trying to get at. He's, he's trying, he, the Lord takes a number of shots at the Pharisees through parables, trying to get them to see, you're not going to make it. And it's because of what's in your heart, not because of your actions, uh, it's because of your attitude. You're not going to make it. I mean, God's plan is that you come to him through his son, and the Pharisees go, we don't want your son. We don't need your son because we're good. And so this is just another one of these parables that in the end you kind of go, all right, well, the lost was, uh, the one that was ironically lost is now found, but the one who you thought was okay is really the one who is lost. So <clears throat> any thoughts on this? We had a couple of interesting questions this morning. One of them I'll bring up here, thoughts as we go through, but yes. Uh, Pharisees. Yep, Pharisees, yep. He could, but that's not the end of the story. Because when you get to the end, the Pharisees never repent of this and they just kind of go, we're not, we're not going to have them. So that's really the point. Um, Doris? It would seem as soon as he sees his son and he runs off, it's been in his, in his mind this whole time. That's something that's left his mind. It's always been in his mind. And we all know when you have you know, children that aren't where they need to be at and the like, you think about them all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> Dave? I get that this illustration is kind of aimed at the Pharisees. But I wonder if, and I think about the, the lost son, and, or the, the, the one that stayed, mm-hmm. the one that didn't go off. And I wonder, it's just striking me now, if his failing was maybe not so much sinning against the father as actively as we talk about, but maybe just failing to recognize the blessings of a quiet, peaceable life. That verse popped in my yeah. head. I had to look it up. It's yeah. But just think, and application-wise, that is kind of where my that meant is, well, boy, take advantage, be, be joyful for a quiet, peaceable life. You think about the whole group he's addressing, they're Israelites. Guess what? They've got the blessing of being able to know who God is by reading the Old Testament. Exactly, yeah. You know, what, what other blessing do you want? You know, you've got it revealed to you, and now God's actually got his son marching through the land, and they, they don't want it. The righteous guys were all upset because Jesus was being around sinners and uh, yeah. not maybe recognizing how they really Anybody else? Because I've got a, another one that you know we we had a discussion about this one here this morning. Somebody brought it up, and it it went on for about five or ten minutes. <clears throat> In real life, if this was to happen, 
would our attitude be like the eldest son? I mean, if this is a real life situation, would we not respond this way going, well, wait a second, you're giving him all of this? I mean, our, our initial reaction would be, you know, okay, you're on probation for a time. You know, you're coming back here, you know, you've, you've lost the trust value here, you know, the trust that we had in you is gone, uh, and so you're on probation here, and we're going to see where you're going. Um, and most of us, you know, we, we kind of downplay, you know, oh, you know, the eldest son, come on, you know, but no, most of us would be like, really? I mean, this is the one who, you know, nearly bankrupted us a couple of years ago by taking everything out of this, and he went off, and as he's saying, listen, he spent it on riotous living. He spent it living with harlots. That's not good investment. This, this is a spoiled brat, and you're suddenly giving him this. We, we would be in that category. If it was a real-life story, our emotions would be on that side. So for reading the story like you should, you're kind of going, you know what? I would be like that. I mean, really? Give this kid a party? He's been away the whole time. But um, if you get that kind of motion, then you kind of realize, wait a second. You know, we, we can sometimes go that way too and kind of go, you know, God would save a sinner? Well, I don't think so. I mean, how? <clears throat> well, we'll be sanctified completely at that point. But how would you feel walking the streets of gold with Saddam Hussein? Wait a second, you know, Adolf Hitler. Wait, wait a second, this guy, this guy was a great sinner. Really? You allowed him into heaven? Can't believe that. You know, we, we you know, in heaven we'll be sanctified and we'll all realize, wait, we didn't deserve any of this anyhow. But, I mean, that's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. Here you got a great sinner, and, and the Father is just lavishing all sorts of stuff. I can't believe this. We, we can have this kind of incredulity, if you want to use that term, uh, the incredibleness of this. You're just kind of going, yeah, okay, I, I could see where the eldest brother's at, but he's not willing to hear the admonition of the Father. You know, challenge, listen, this is something incredible that's taken place. We ought to rejoice that it's happened. Uh, not be upset by it, but uh, yeah. Anybody else? Thinking through this. Marge? On uh, the last page, however, there are attitudes toward the Father was one. Pride. Pride. Yep. Pride. Natalie? It doesn't really, you know, is it sinful, you know, to say you gave this away to somebody? It doesn't really define it exactly, but the attitude in the end is you shouldn't be giving away your stuff. And you're going, well, who's got the right to give away the stuff? God does. You know, the Father does. He can give away whatever he wants. Um, You know, he... I've thought about this. He could spend his son's inheritance. You know, you ever seen the bumper sticker? You know, I'm, I'm spending my, you know, kid's inheritance. Um, 
the dad could have spent everything and go, here, son, here's what you get, you know, the eldest son, and the eldest son's going home. <laughs> what? But that was the father's right to do that. It, it doesn't really, you know, come down to that. It's just the son goes, I, I disagree with what you're doing. I can't believe you're doing this, and you don't have a right to do this. And the fact is, is the father does have the right to do that, which then indicates, you know, to me indicates the fact that the son thinks he's better than his dad because, you know, I can run things better than he is. And yeah, that's, that's the sin we all have. I can run things better than God does. And yeah, so whatever. Brian? Kind of go back to something you just hit as far as we would often be in the situation of the older son. How often are we preemptively in that position where we see someone and we assume because they're such a sinner, they're not even worth sharing the gospel <clears throat> to give them the chance to repent? Yeah. When we can be that way, and we think, no, no, no person like that could, yeah. And so we can preemptively, as you said, not give them the gospel because they won't, they won't respond to it, and they will. So, Bob? Isn't it a comparison between grace and works? It, it, it is a, very much a comparison between grace and works. Um, the youngest son had done nothing to deserve any of the blessing he got, whereas you got the Pharisee on the other side that's going, hey, I've done, or the eldest son, I've done all this stuff, I'm deserving of this. And like, well, no, the father doesn't have to give you anything, but he has allowed you some of the blessing of just being around him. And you don't even see that as a blessing. So, yeah, it is. It's a contrast between grace and works. <clears throat> 